Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that, that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh great store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew children are not like the, the Hebrew women, are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with, with, with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. About this time, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. The baby's sister then stood at a distance, watching to see what would happen to him. Soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river, and her attendants walked along the river bank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it for her. When the princess opened it, opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you, she asked. Yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. I will pay for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. Many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. 
The next day, when Moses went out to visit his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend? Moses said to one of them, the one who had started the fight. The man replied, Who appointed you to be our prince and judge? Are you going to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Then Moses was afraid, thinking, Everyone knows what I did. And sure enough, Pharaoh heard about what had happened, and he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. When Moses arrived in Midian, he sat down beside a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters who came as usual to draw water and fill the water troughs for their father's flocks. But some other shepherds came and chased them away. So Moses jumped up and rescued the girls from the shepherds. Then he drew water for their flocks. When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked, Why are you back so soon today? An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds, they answered. And then he drew water for us and watered our flocks. Then where is he there? father asked. Why did you leave him there? Invite him to come and eat with us. Moses accepted the invitation and he settled there with him. In time, Rule gave Moses his daughter Zipporah to be his wife. Later she gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom, for he explained, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. Years passed, and the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. Hey, uh, thanks Noah and Talitha. It's awesome that they came and read a very big passage for us. Well, good morning everyone. I hope you're doing well on uh, this Sunday. Um, If you haven't already, like um, we've shared this morning at the start, there's small group study guides. If you're not in a small group uh, and you don't have a study guide, please do. Your small group leader should have grabbed one for you. Uh, John's also shared with you about the, the payment plan you can set up with us if you wish. Um, this morning, we begin uh, a bit of a... F- over the next few months, we're going to be taking our time through the book of Exodus. Uh, maybe it's something that you already know about. You know, if you've grown up in the Christian church, you've read stories, you've seen those pictures as a little kid. And maybe you're someone who's exploring the Christian faith for the very first time. Or maybe you're just sort of checking out church. I want you to know, the reason why we read the Bible like that is, for some of us, this is probably the first time you've sat this week and actually read the Bible or listened to it. Because you've had a busy week, for various reasons. For some of us, we may think it's just another book. But the reason why we do it here is because we believe when we hear it, listen to it, it's as though we're hearing the very words of God. This is not just a made-up story. This is a true story. Maybe your view of Exodus is something like this up here on the screen. Um, You'll see some pictures of movies. Uh, One called Exodus, God and Kings. I haven't seen it. doesn't look exciting for me. Prince of Egypt, if you've got a little one, you probably have seen it. Uh, And this may show some of the age for us. How many of you have seen the Ten Commandments? Oh, there's some young people too. Great. Um, I think the parents made them do that. Um, It's a bit of a classic, isn't it? 
It's interesting that the culture that we live in and the culture that is part, probably not as much now, in the past, there's something interesting about these stories that capture our own imaginations. So what we can do over the next few months is go through the book of Exodus. But as we do this, I want to invite you to do a few things, okay? Because this is us joining in God with God. So I would invite you to pray. Would you pray that the Lord would use his word to transform all our hearts, whoever we are? Would you pray for us, who have the great privilege to teach and preach passages from here? Because we are in a spiritual battle just like you are. Would you pray for each other as a church? That God would transform hearts. We'd invite you to soak in the book of Exodus. What do I mean by that? Read it. Listen to it. Talk to your friends about it. Uh, one of the things I did this past uh, couple of months ago was I purchased one of these. It's an Exodus, Exodus scripture journal. So all it is, for those of us who like writing, is on one side of the page you've got the passage and then on the other side is a blank uh, sort of section. So it's just a way of spending time in Exodus. And finally, as we explore Exodus, I want you to be asking this question. Who's Exodus pointing me to? Who's the actual liberator in the story of Exodus. And why does it actually even matter for us today in 2021? It sounds like a very ancient story. So would you join with me in prayer as we begin? Father, we come before you this morning and ask, whoever we are, would you still our hearts, mine included? Would you protect us? And we pray as well that we would walk away knowing you more and your heart for us and how we may grow to worship you. Oh Jesus, we ask you would be glorified. In the mighty name of God. In your mighty name. Amen. I don't know if you realize this, that we're going to be doing Exodus at the 10.30 service. The 9 a.m. service is also going through Exodus. The youth groups, the IA youth that meet here on Fridays, are also going through the book of Exodus. Kids Church is also going through the book of Exodus. Hopefully by the end of it, no one's going to go, oh my goodness, I'm over Exodus. But the whole point of that is we as a church family traveling together in, under God's word. Last week, if you were on our, during our online service, you would have met Andrew Brown, an MSC lecturer, and he gave this really detailed history lesson on the book of um, Genesis. And with that in mind, before we jump into Exodus 1 and 2, we need to set the scene for us. And so if you have a, a Bible, just flick across to Genesis 50, verses 20 to 26. It's up here on the screen if you don't. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim, children of the third generation. The children also of Mechah, son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here. Joseph is a significant character in the Old Testament. He is about to die. He's about to die in a land that is actually not his own. He knows this. And this is why he speaks to his brothers and says, Hey, please, don't leave my bones. My remains here. Promise me. Promise me you will carry my bones with you. But note what he says. Did you pick that up in the verses? 
God will surely visit you, and he shall carry and you shall carry my bones from here. And then we have Exodus chapter one. Actually, in the Hebrew Bible, what we have is the last chapter of Genesis, and then there's not like now Genesis, the last chapter is finished, and now we go to chapter one. The word that connects the two chapters and Meaning, it's a continuation and story continuing in Exodus chapter 1. This is now moving from a, a person, and now it's moving toward people and a place that goes beyond Egypt. In the opening verses of Exodus, we have these words. In verse, Exodus 1, verses 6 to 7. Look with me in your, in your Bible. And Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. So the Lord was so the land was filled with them. <coughs> Excuse me. What's the point of all of that? Why would you start something like that? Well, we need to remember Exodus is the word meaning exit. It's to, to, to leave. And it's understood that most likely the person who's writing it, all of Exodus most likely would have been Moses. And Moses is a significant writer of the Old Testament. You've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Okay, good, just listening, yep. Right, known as the Pentateuch. Now, he wrote most of it, probably not Deuteronomy 34, it's talking about his death. That'd be a bit weird if you wrote that as well. But the idea is Moses is writing to an audience and he's wanting them to pay attention and he's wanting us to pay attention. The reason why it starts like this is talking about something that you go, that sounds really familiar about multiplication and, and, and fruitfulness and, and growing. What, what's going on here? Well, it's an echo of what was happening in Genesis 1. But God says, in Genesis 1.28, if you look up here and see, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. It's a moment of what we're seeing is, Exodus is hinting now of that what God has commanded, what God said you should be doing as my people is starting to happen. Now it's focusing on a group of people, that's people of Israel. They have now made their home in Egypt. Despite of the death of Joseph, they are increasing as a nation, as a people group. And the language is so strong, it's talking about they're not only growing numbers, but they're growing in strength. This is the growth of a people, but we're also seeing God's story being written and unveiled for us. God's purposes and his design is starting to be fulfilled through his people. In this moment, what we're seeing is for the, for the audience then and for us, God is unfolding his plan. This is actually saying that these people are part of God's big story. His story of liberating grace. So with that introduction set for us, like any good story we get to meet an enemy. Have a look with me in Exodus 1, verses 8 to 10. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. If you're someone who's come to Canterbury Gardens Community Church, 
at some point, people will say things like this. Oh, actually, that's not what we've done. We've always done this, and this is why. You know, so-and-so, they're related to that person over there. Oh, really? How many people are related in this church? A lot. Or, you know, according to our church roots, this is what we've done. And people who are new will go, why are you doing it this particular way? They don't quite understand. Or maybe in a a cultural organizational level, have you ever heard of a Christian organization that started up with Christian roots, started by a Christian founder, and over generations, what happens is it's forgotten. It's forgotten of why and who, what's the reason this is about. And in this moment, what they're forgetting is this. This story is connected to God's big plan. So the verses here is a history lesson, both for the people then and for us. If you flick again to Genesis 41, it's up here on the screen. This is why this is important. This statement is important and that the king did not know Joseph. It's making a significant statement. Why? Well, in Genesis 41, we're told, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he was set over all the land of Egypt. And you can keep reading that a bit later. So Joseph, in the story of Genesis and in the culture of Egypt, he's a significant person. He had significant leadership. But see... The person who put Joseph there was not Joseph. You read Genesis, it was God who put Joseph there. It wasn't Pharaoh who actually enlisted him. It's actually God was in the background. So when we read this kind of language of the Pharaoh not knowing Joseph, it's another way of saying the Pharaoh did not know Joseph, neither did the Pharaoh know the God of Joseph. And this now sets the scene for us throughout Exodus, the battle that's about to begin between God and this Pharaoh. See, this Pharaoh sees the increase and is threatened and worried. The Israelites, Israelites will turn on us. And what's his response? Well, let's control them. Let's enslave them. This is a king that wants to and is deliberately committed to both physically and emotionally crushing them in order to control them as a people group. Friends, you can read that throughout the history books, right? That has nothing new. That regimes who have always existed and still exist today, what they end up doing is zeroing into groups, including Christian groups, in order to control them and deliberately over time burden them both physically, emotionally, in the hope that they will crush them. This is a satanic agenda. Pharaoh is being influenced by the evil one. Yet in this moment we have a beautiful glimpse of what happens when persecution and oppression grows. What we're seeing is even though this king is truly bent on something, we're seeing God at work still, and then you have this king who is so committed to destroying the people. As you see that in Exodus 1, verses 12 to 14. But the more they were oppressed, this is the beautiful thing, the more they multiplied and more they spread abroad. 
And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work hard as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Friends, what we're seeing now is the beginning pattern through the book of Exodus. What we're seeing is, yes, it's Israel versus the Egyptians, but on a bigger and deeper level, what we're seeing is evil, the evil one, Satan versus God. So as much as the Israelites were oppressed, it's beautiful to see that they continue to multiply and increase and increase. As one commentator put it, nothing in the oppression, is, uh, nothing in the oppression caused this, of course. Rather, the blessing of God. You flick across to Genesis 12 and you'll see that was on Israel in spite of the efforts of Egypt to hinder it. According to Genesis 15, you can flick there later on, God has foretold that this would be a period of oppression. In other words, God has decreed and predicted both their becoming a great nation and their oppression to show that he would fulfill his promise to Abraham in spite of their bondage. It's a beautiful reminder to you and I, even today, what God says will happen. What God says will happen. Even though it looks like, humanly speaking, this looks impossible, how is God going to work this out? It's a great reminder that God is actually in the midst of working in persecution, in oppression. This past week, I was just looking up some t- statistics, and one of the fascinating things I saw was this. I looked up, if you can look this up yourself, it's an operation world where it talks about evangelical growth, where the church is growing the fastest. The, the churches where, they, where they're growing the fastest are ranked here up here on the screen. Number one, Iran. Number two, Afghanistan. Number three, Gambia. Then you've got Cambodia, then you've got Greenland, then you've got Algeria, Somalia, Mongolia, Kuwait, and Tajikistan. If you look at that list, what's fascinating is most of those lists, most of those countries, it's illegal to be a follower of Christ. It's illegal to believe in the God of the Bible that we're reading about. Actually, in recent study that during COVID, the fastest growing church in the world is where? Do you know? Anyone? China? Yep. Do you know who it is? It's Iran. Church planters there are... Oh, sorry, let me start that again. Some people there are have been in conversation and saying that they can't keep up with it. It's a beautiful reminder to you and I, God's purposes will not be stopped, even if it looks like evil seems to triumph. It's a reminder for us to, to be courageous, and particularly for your followers of Christ, oppression and opposition will come. It's a great reminder God's purpose cannot be stopped. It's actually quite usually the opposite. The microphone's working. What's interesting as well, as much as statistics show about the fastest growing church and that, uh, it was also interesting to read where the slowest growing evangelical population is. 
It's up here on the screen. Australia ranks 37. And we think that it'll get worse, according to statistics. I don't know about you, that should hopefully break your heart a little bit. And I pray that God would have mercy on this nation. Coming back to Exodus, we have escalation and oppression. Now, Pharaoh is so consumed by pure hate and evil, we move towards the end of chapter 1. What we see is hatred of Pharaoh fully displayed. He's committed to killing and threatening now. He's seeing they're increasing, and so he's thinking, what can I do? His solution is death, to bring death. Where? To the sons of Israel. And he enlists interesting women, two midwives, or Hebrew midwives. He commands them, kill any males. And what you see now is this beautiful moment of the question being asked, so the Pharaoh gives you a command, who will you obey, midwives? Exodus 1.17 says, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Once again, you have this question that will come up throughout the story of Exodus. Who will you serve? Who will you worship? Who will you obey? And for the midwives, there is only one. It is the God that they worship, the God that they belong to. And what they do is the totally exact opposite to what the Pharaoh wants. So the, for the Pharaoh, this is a threat. The idea of the males is that so they don't become potential warriors. So how do you sort that out? You kill them. So his own fears and security, insecurities are there, but it's leading him towards evil. So the midwives are committed to serving only one king, that is their God, and they obey him first. If you go through uh, Exodus, and there are moments when I would encourage you to notice something, see how many times Pharaoh's name comes up. If you look at the text, it's usually the people of God and their names that come up. It's a beautiful way for the author to say that this couple, this midwives, they are known to God. They, are God. they belong to God, and so they are being faithful to God. And that's the same for you and I today. That if you know him and you're in relationship with him, you are known to him. More importantly, he loves you and he knows you. See, these very actions of the midwives put their lives at risk. This is not like nowadays, you know, you might lose your job, but here is this moment they could actually face death. And this is humorous discussion going on. The Pharaoh comes and says, what are you doing? How are you letting this happen? I love the way the women respond. Well, what can we do? These Hebrew women are amazing. Before we get there, it's all done. Now, you might think, well, is that lying? Friends, I want you to remember what's going on here. It's another way for the Hebrew midwives to say, King, it's none of your business, actually. I want you to know that we're here to honor someone else. There's a greater king that we bow to. You have a king who desires to take life, and you have a true king, the one who is God, and they're committed to honoring him. And they're blessed for their faithfulness. 
Now in verse 20, you have this beautiful picture of life. That they're given life. They are given families. You have one picture of a king who is committed to destruction and hate. And you have God, the king, offering grace and life and provision. You know, friends, when we read these kind of passages, it feels very different, right? It seems very uh, far away. In this moment, it's for you and I to go, okay, it's the same question to you and I is, as you and I head into our homes, as we head into our workplaces, whom will we obey today? Will we obey the culture around us? Will we obey the boss who may be asking you to do unethical things? Or will we obey the one who is God? This Pharaoh is so determined by this hate, he now moves to the next level and decrees this. I want you to remember these verses. It should actually cause us us to bring a bit of shock in our hearts, the thought that newborn sons thrown into the Nile River. It's heartbreaking. It's a reminder of what happens when leaders and nations do not, do not value the life of a child. That is true even today in our very own state and country. And the story of Exodus is that moment, if you can re- remember a great story being read to you and you're hearing this and going, no, what's going to happen now? They're about to throw those kids into the river. This is horrible. And then you have Pharaoh who's ev- really evil. But this is an evil pharaoh. But this is the true story of the evil one, the devil himself. The devil is committed to destroying everything that is going to represent God in any way. What pharaoh doesn't realize, it's not pharaoh versus the Israelites, it's actually pharaoh versus God, and even more, it is God versus Satan. At the moment, if you're a good story listener, once again, you'd be saying, okay, who's going to put a stop to this? This sounds horrible. And you have Exodus chapter 2. It's as though the tension's being felt. And what we're seeing is God's story of Genesis, God's story continuing. So we have this marriage that's declared here. Not just to any marriage, but actually a Hebrew marriage. And particularly that's very important in the Old Testament context because the Hebrew guys, the Israelites, were uh, encouraged not to intermarry with those of other faith. And here you have uh, two Hebrew people getting married. What we're seeing is a couple who fear God. What's displayed are actions that show that their God, they're not fearful of this person who declares himself as God, the Pharaoh, but they are fearful of the one who is the God of the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And they're blessed with a son. Remember the answer earlier? Who's going to rescue? Who's going to come into this? How is God going to sort this out? What we have is an echo of the beautiful words that actually come out of Genesis. Did you see the, the woman's response as she holds this son? Not sure what your translation says. The ESV says, says that this son was fine probably don't use that language anymore. It's another way of saying that she was so filled with joy. She was filled with joy with this life. Do you know that it's the same word that God used to declare when he looked at all of creation? 
and he himself was filled with great joy and saw that it was good. You have this contrast of Pharaoh who sees the sons as disgusting and wants to destroy them and hate. And you have this Hebrew woman who sees this child with great joy just as God does. This couple sees its life as a gift from God and they disobey the orders and they hide their little one. This three-month-old baby, as it gets older, probably louder, can't hide it. And this is the moment, if you've grown up in the church and Sunday school, you've seen the pictures, you've done the colouring in probably, you know. The child is put in a basket of bitumen and pitch. And I love how God is writing this story through Moses. I mean, the very words used for the, the basket, if you've studied this, you probably already know this, is the same word used for the ark that Noah went through the waters. It's a way to make us click and go, this is God displaying that he's faithful and merciful to his children. And in this moment, this child who has no name yet, through his mom who has great faith, puts her son in. If you're listening to the story or watching, it's like, what's going to happen? The crocodile's going to get us. Is somebody else going to come? And who's going to get him? And all of a sudden, who appears into the scene? The daughter of Pharaoh. Dramatic music. They're following the story and they go, oh, no, not her. Anyone but her. Do you remember the decree? What were they meant to do? See a firstborn, see a son, what do you do? You throw them in the river. But see what happens in Exodus chapter 2, verses 6 to 7. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? The cry of this child stirs something in here. The language is that she doesn't just show pity. She's filled with compassion. She's filled with compassion. It's an amazing, beautiful reminder that God's handprint is all through this moment. That God's purposes will not be thwarted. It will always be fulfilled. But it is based on His terms. I love verse 7. The daughter just rocks up. Oh, what are you doing here? This child is then taken back to the mother. And the mother gets paid for it. This is a great deal, if you ask me. To look after her own child. In time, he's brought before the Pharaoh's courts, where he's grown and molded and shaped. He understands that world. He knows that culture. He knows that language. And if you're a child listening in, going, oh, this can't be good for Moses. But the very name given is a reminder The name reminds us is the one who's drawn out of water. It's a way of making us tweak our hearts and minds to say, this is God leading Moses towards God's plan. It's like saying, as one theologian put it, Moses was drawn out of water, but eventually he would lead his people through the waters. So we meet Moses. It's not really a great introduction of a guy and a hero. You go, is this the guy? He's grown up in the courts of Pharaoh. He knows that he's a Hebrew child. There's a sense of God's protection over him. And so he has this moment where he sees the injustice caused by the very hands that have raised him. He can't take it. He sees an Egyptian beating his own 
uh, Hebrew uh, mankind and decides to take justice into his own hands. I mean, the very language in verse 12, if you see that, is turning. It's not like he's lost. It's like saying, okay, when's my opportune moment to pounce in and sort this out? But what Moses does is he takes the whole situation into his own hands. He decides to take it into his own hands in his own strength and you show that, what does he do? He tries to cover up his tracks. So he thought. Next day he sees two Hebrew guys fighting. And hey, it's in this moment he steps in like the hero and says, hey, break it off guys, you shouldn't be doing this. I love their comeback in Exodus 2, 13 to 15. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. Another way of putting it in an Australian translation might be something like this. Who do you think you are, mate? To tell me what to do. Are you going to kill that guy? That you, you're going to kill us just like you did that bloke the other day? See... This kind of interaction of who do you think you are? Who made you prince and judge over us? Is something I would encourage you to circle and see when it comes up again. Fear fills Moses' heart and he ends up fleeing as the news gets out. This is a man who's now exiled. He doesn't have a home. Friends, it's a good reminder for you and I in that moment when you and I are tempted to take a situation into our own hands to be prince, judge and ruler, even particularly when we see injustice. I don't know about you, are you ever tempted to take matters into your hands? It's another way of saying we'll sort it ourselves. What do I mean by that? Please hear me. I'm not saying sit back and do nothing, okay? What I mean is when we say something like this, maybe not verbally, at least in our heart, God, I don't think you can handle this. I don't think you've got this under control. Can I sort it out for you? Remember the language here? Who is the true prince and judge over all for the people of Israel? This God who has been hinting all along in Genesis and Exodus and eventually Moses would play this type of role. God is the one who rescues God is the one who will always think justly and does things justly. Only he can. Friends, if you're a follower of God, right now, what's going on in our world, in our culture, in your workplace, wherever it might be, you're tempted to say, God, that is injustice. I don't think you have this. Let me sort it out for you. Can I invite you to step back? Remind yourself who does have it. It's the sovereign God who says that he is judge. And he is priest. Moses is now a murderer. What's fascinating is that God is still willing to use him. It's a reminder to us that Moses is not a perfect leader. And that is an echo of what is to come. And now you have this man who's fled. He's not home. He keenly knows it. And once again, God is with him. God provides for him. It's amazing. But there's a development now happening in the very character of who he is. He sits by the well and a local priest, uh, priest's daughter, daughters come, seven of them, come to draw water. And Moses sees injustice. 
But this time, he doesn't kill anyone. He gets involved. He steps in. He delivers them. And not only that, did you notice what he does? What does he do for the women? He serves them. Verse 17 is the beginning of what he would eventually become. That is, to deliver and to serve the people of Israel. And it's a great reminder for any of us who are thinking of being in any kind of leadership. Understandably, the father of seven daughters who are not married yet, here of a bloke who can handle himself and provides for them. That is a good deal. So he asks them, please, who is this person? So he comes and he does a vow with them. That was part of the practices in that time. Moses vows and he stays and he's given a wife. Once again, we're seeing he settles, he marries, he's fruitful. These are Genesis echoes coming through. But it's not also just for Moses. It's a reminder of God providing for his people. He names the son Gershom, sojourner in a foreign land. This is Moses' reality. This is Israel's reality. It is the hint of the story moving forward now towards the promised land. But they're no longer going to be sojourners anymore. They're moving towards the promised land. This is the language that's going on here. And then you have in Exodus 2, verses 23 to 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew Remember how the first chapter started and mentioning those names? Now the second chapter ends in another way. But it's the same kind of idea. It's a great reminder that the king or the pharaoh dies, that this king is judged, he faces death. This is the impact of sin on all. The slavery and persecution and injustice stirs a nation not to just cry out, but they're groaning, they're crying out. The language is so strong It's the best way to describe it is that if you've ever broken an arm or a leg and that pain that you feel in that moment, it's the same kind of language here. That's the groaning crying out. It comes to God. If you have a pen or a highlighter, this is the moment I would encourage you in those verses, circle how many times God comes up. Their cries came up to God. God is the one who hears them. God is the one who remembers his promise of covenant. God saw, God knew. The first two chapters, as a conclusion to draw our attention then and for us today, this is who the God of the Bible then and now is today, that he will hear the cry of his people, that he will keep his promises and covenants, he will see the outcry of injustice, that he will not only just pay attention, he'll pay great attention to the needs of his people. And not only that, he is already taking action and he will continue to take action and even in this moment he takes action. When it talks about God remembering, it's not like God is there and going, I think I forgot something, I can't remember. Oh, the Israelites, sorry, my bad. No, it's a beautiful reminder to you, particularly in the Old Testament, you'll hear that language and God remembered It's the Bible revealing that God remembers means he's paying special attention and he's involved and his plans and sovereign plans will be achieved. 
that he's intensely caring for his people. So much, and throughout this story, he knows his people by name. So in the first few chapters, as much as the audience then, even for us, they're waiting for this hero, a deliverer. Just as Joseph said God would visit them and bring them or deliver them out of this land, God is the one who delivered Moses and spared his life. God is the one who provided the ark to rescue, to save him. God is the one who is the true deliverer. And ultimately, we know as the story continues all the way into the New Testament, he would ultimately send the true great deliverer. The one who would enter this world and his very birth. And you read the accounts in the gospel. Evil was determined to kill him. The graphic reality is in the Gospels where Jesus himself as a young child had to go to Egypt as other children were murdered in that city. Jesus Christ is the one, is the just one, who could easily come in and do the best justice that he chose. Rather than to take life, he gave his life so that you and I could have true life through him. Jesus Christ is the one who invites his children that in the moment of injustice that you and I see throughout this world, even in our very state, what we do is we cry out to the one who is the great deliverer to have mercy. This is why Christians should weep when we see injustice. That when children in our own state are murdered. This is why Christians should cry out to God for our brothers and sisters in Christ, that God would give them the courage to persevere under the great deliverer as they face injustice and persecution. I mean, the growth of the persecuted church is a reminder to you and I, Christ loves his bride, he hears her cry, and he will sustain them, and his gospel will continue. Jesus is our great deliverer, and he calls you and I to be part of his mission to live lives to be part, set apart, to live the lives displayed that we belong to him. So friends, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, does your life and my life show that we belong to this great God who is king and prince and judge? Evil is real. Satan still exists. He does not want the truth of Christ to grow. But we will discover as we go through Exodus, God's plan and purposes and liberating grace cannot be stopped. And if you know him, what's important as well is in the midst of this, I want to remind you, you're known to him. The creator of the universe knows who you are rulers, princes, dictators, they'll come and go. Creator of the new universe knows you by your name. And he will keep his promises. And he will stand beside you because Christ is still our deliverer today. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, in what's known as the prison letters, uh, said this as they found it after his uh, death. 
May God in his mercy lead us through these times. So you've got to remember he's living during Nazi um, occupation. He's in jail. He's going to actually get killed. And this is what he says. Now may God in his mercy lead us through these times. But above all, may he lead us to himself. That's our prayer as we consider Exodus. Would you join with me in prayer? Our great God who is deliverer over all, we bow at your feet. The one who is the true prince and great judge, we bow at your feet. We cry out for mercy in our own state, for the injustice that happens all around us. We pray as your servants who know you, help us to live for you, the knowledge that you know us. Grow in us a fear and awe of you because of Christ and what he's done. In the mighty name of God, we pray. Amen.